is in the Bible that is unique. And it's one of two larger sections in the Bible that is actually questionable as to whether or not it should be in the Bible. So there are two primary sections, and most scholars do not believe this section belongs in the Bible. So this verse, this passage today, and then the end of Mark chapter 16 are not in any of the earliest and best manuscripts that we have. I'll explain that in a little bit further detail here in a minute. I have, ex- I have printed off in the lobby a fuller and more detailed explanation of this. Uh, it's a, just a six-page document that you can pick, it, pick up about what's called textual criticism. And this document does a better job than I can do in explaining the intricacies of a very, very detailed discipline called historical textual criticism. So it has to do with manuscripts, historical manuscripts, and how we have the Bible that we have today. And there really is a supernatural process, but there is also very historically reliable data that we can look at and say the Bible is reliable. The Bible that we have in our hands is a very reliable document, more reliable than any other historical document that we have or that we can have in our hands today. And so if you want to go in further detail than what I'm going to go into, please grab this in the lobby. I think I have six or seven copies out there. And if there's more, if you need more, if there's more than that, I can print those off for you. But For our sake, I want to read just a couple excerpts from this that's going to help us understand what we're talking about here with this particular passage. And then I want to do kind of a visual demonstration of why we can trust the Bible. So here's what's amazing about the reliability of the New Testament manuscripts that we have. Just some a couple amazing facts about the Bible. It has to do with the abundance of the manuscripts that we have of the New Testament or parts of the New Testament. So actual parchments of paper, um, whether it be papyrus, whether it be on pottery, whatever it may be, we have different manuscript evidence down through the ages, and we have an abundance of them. We have numbers of manuscript evidences that far outweigh other manuscripts of other historical works. So we have all these historical works down through history from from, from the history of Rome, the detailed history of Rome, to works like uh, Iliad and the Odyssey by Homer, uh, to writings of Plato, um, and all of the, the ancient philosophies that we have. These things we have are recorded in manuscripts, and they are uh, manuscripts that were originally written, and then there were copies of these manuscripts that were written, and then copies of those copies that were written, and then copies of those copies that were written. And what we know of the original manuscripts of Plato or any historical work comes from copies of the original manuscripts. Copies of copies of copies of copies. Now, it's interesting when we look at other historical works, the limited amount of manuscripts that we have for historical literature. Let me read a couple for you. The limited amount for other historical works outside of the Bible, we have a limited amount of historical manuscripts. Okay? Let me give you a few examples. There are ten existing manuscripts of Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, and that's composed between 58 and 50 BC. We have 10 manuscripts of historical happenings that happened between 58 and 50 BC, and all of the manuscripts that we have date 10th century or later. 
In other words, the actual copies of the copies of the copies of the copies of the copies that we have are copies from over a thousand years past when those wars actually happened. We have ten copies of them. Ten copies, not of the original manuscripts, but of the copies 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 of the copies. Ten manuscripts. There are 20 manuscripts of Lively's Roman history written roughly at the time when Jesus is alive. About 20 manuscripts. Only two manuscripts exist for Tacitus' history of the annals, which were... uh, which were composed around 100 A.D. And there is only one and that, uh, that is and one of those from the 9th century and one from the 11th century. So we have one copy. Now think about this. With all of Roman money and resources, when there was a history written about Rome by Tacitus and all the rich richness of like Roman libraries and power and authority, we only have two copies, two copies, from Roman history, from around 100 A.D., written around 100 A.D., and those two copies are from the 9th century, one from the 9th century, and one from the 11th century. So we don't have a wealth of historical manuscripts. And yet nobody doubts the history of Rome when they read Tacitus, from only two manuscripts. There are only eight manuscripts in the history of uh, T-H-U-C-Y-D-I-D-E-S, that name, who lived... From 460 to 400 B.C., okay? Now, compare just those, and uh, like the Iliad and the Odyssey, I believe, there are 48 manuscripts of any ancient work. That's the most of any ancient work outside of the, of the Bible. Uh, Homer wrote Iliad and the Odyssey, and we have about 48 copies. You can just look this up on the Internet. This isn't something that is debatable. It's historical facts, on these numbers. Now, when you compare those numbers with the manuscripts and partial manuscripts from the New Testament, these numbers, they're given from the Institute of New Testament Textual Research in Munster, Germany, and it's the most authoritative collection of data in the entire world. There are 20, 322 unical texts, 2,907 minuscule texts, 2,448 lectionary portions, and 127 papyri texts, and a total of 5,801 manuscripts from of the New Testament dating... Uh, a parchment of Mark was found from the first century A.D. So people who lived in the lifetime of Jesus, we have copies of the manuscripts. We don't have the original manuscripts, like the actual manuscripts, but the original words from those manuscripts we actually have in those 5,801 manuscripts. These are handwritten copies of the New Testament or parts of the New Testament, and they're preserved in libraries throughout the world, and you can actually find these online now. A lot of what I'm saying right now you can find in this document. Now, here's what's fascinating. If you only had two manuscripts of a historical work, two manuscripts, you have this manuscript, let's say with Tacitus, from 900 A.D., and then the other manuscript from 1100 A.D., these two manuscripts. You'd think, well, two, if they're, if, if they're in agreement, great. Well, two sounds great. Well, it sounds like... That, that would be a good thing. Then you, there, you just read one of them or the other, and there wouldn't be that many errors. But here's the deal. If you have one document and another document, and there's agreement in this portion of the document and disagreement in this portion of the document, which one's right? You don't know. 
But what happens with the wealth of New Testament manuscripts that we have, 5,801, when you have a 5,801, and let's just say on the gospel, in the Gospel of John, 5,801 of them, or eight, eight, uh, 5,799 of them, all have the ver- these verses, this particular verse, the exact same way, and two of them have the, the verse nuanced. Well, which one is right? Well, the wealth of manuscripts that we have that are all in unison are the ones that are correct. So the wealth of information that we have in those manuscripts is so helpful. So we could say like this. If we put a bunch of chairs in a line here, let's just say we put 100 chairs, okay? And each of those 100 chairs represents one Bible verse. Now, we're just talking about 100 manuscripts. So chairs equal manuscripts. And 99 of them are facing this way. And one chair is facing this way. Be quite foolish of us to say, well, the 99 are wrong and the one is right. The 99 are correct and we can tell where the errors are, scribal errors are, we can tell where the, where the manuscript errors are because of the wealth of the information that we have in those manuscripts. And so when we come to our Bibles, we can trust them. We can trust that what we have in front of us is the original words handed down to us by God. And when we compare those historical works compared to anything else in all of human history, it's, it's simply uncomparable because of the wealth of information that we have. And so, when we talk about manuscripts, we can trust God's word. Now, I say all that to say this. Of those manuscripts, John 8... Verse 1 through 11 is not in there. It shows up in the 9th century. So we don't necessarily know how it got there. So I, and this is the great thing about the Bible. We know this. And so it's caveated for us in here. And so I think we should at least say what I believe is that this actually happened. This event actually happened. I don't know if this is authoritative in the same way the rest of the Bible is. But it's caveated in our Bible. So in every one of your Bibles, unless you have a King James or a New King James, if you look, it says, it's kind of bookmarked with two, um, with two parentheses. It says, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. That's why. Okay? So the good thing is, we know it. But as we look at this today, and I'm going to preach it as if it is God's Word today, as we look at this passage, it is unbelievably consistent with the rest of the New Testament. Jesus' words and actions are not contradictory in any way. And an interesting thing, even if this was not in our Bible, say it wasn't there, okay, we just take it out, there's nothing that we would be missing doctrinally if it wasn't there, okay? So if you want anything further, hopefully that's a helpful explanation. If you want anything further, get this document, and I want you ultimately not to be questioning God's word at all. I want you to understand that you can trust God's word. And this will help you with that to understand this and the other passage at the end of Mark chapter 16. Okay? And if that, didn't, if that made you more confused, I hope it didn't. Um, but hopefully that can clarify. So now, I'm going to preach this as if it actually happened. And I'm going to preach it because I believe the rest of the Bible teaches exactly the same thing that's in this passage. Make sense? Okay. Let me read it. Starting at chapter 7, verse 53. They each went to his own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came to the temple, came again to the temple. 
All the people came to him and sat down and and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground, and they continued to ask him, and he stood up and he said to him, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to cast a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote in the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. What we see in this gospel and in the other gospels over and over again is pharisaical jealousy. Jesus, the untrained religious teacher, was gathering crowds around him and teaching with authority, and the Pharisees couldn't stand it. They hated it, and they regularly tried to set Jesus up for failure. Because here's the truth about the Pharisees. They didn't, in the end, care about what was reality or what was true. It really was of no consequence. They just wanted to be right. They wanted to maintain control over Jesus and over the people. They had invested interest in it. As long as they were looked to as authoritative, they had power, they had wealth, they had social status, and they did not like this Jesus. And so they try in this situation to set Jesus up. They try to trap him, to trick him. And it's fascinating. Jesus is teaching After he went to the Mount of Olives, he went to the temple in verse 2 in the morning and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. And then in verse 3, we see the scribes and the Pharisees interrupt Jesus' teaching of the people with a woman. Apparently, they found this woman in the act of adultery, in the act of sexual sin, and they brought her, not the man, they brought just the woman, out to Jesus And their plan was to set Jesus up against the law of Moses. They think they're trapping Jesus. She's clearly caught in an act of sin. They are right that the law of Moses does call for an action to be done. And so their idea was, we're going to interrupt right as he's teaching, bring this woman who is caught in this sinful act. She can't deny it. She can't excuse it. It is clear rebellion, clear sin against God, clear sin. And we're going to put him right in front, and then we're going to call Jesus to account. And let's just see if we can't trap him in front of everybody. So they set him up. And in verse 5, clearly they appeal to Moses because they say, Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? Clearly they say this. To test him. Now, notice the scribes and Pharisees and how cold they are to other people. How hard-hearted they are to this woman. Okay, 
they are willing to put this woman to public shame to expose her to prove their point. They so want control, they seize this opportunity to throw this woman under the bus to make themselves look great. To them, this woman is not a person This woman is not made in the image of God. They surely would have known that reading their Old Testament and being Old Testament scholars that this woman was made in the image of God. And they bring her out and they use her as a tool for their own purposes. They don't care about the law actually in this moment. They just want to trap Jesus. They don't care about right and wrong. They don't care about what Leviticus says to do with a woman caught in adultery. They want to one-up Jesus, and they see this woman as a tool, as an opportunity to get that done. And so this woman, there she stands, and she's exposed, and she most certainly is ashamed. She's standing there in front of Jesus and a crowd, and if they caught this woman in the act, it means that she's either, she's not dressed very well, they brought her out in front of people. This is embarrassing. This is really embarrassing for this woman. It's shaming, um, and yet she has something to be ashamed of. So some of her shame is not unwarranted. But she's standing there with her sin, not private anymore, very public. Now many of us have our private sins that we think are private, God knows. Now, what if your private sins, your darkest moment, what if you were brought in front on display for the world to see? What would you feel like in that moment? Like, what if we could take your life, your mind, and your thought life through the week, men, women, and we kind of put it on a thumb drive and went and plugged it into the side of that computer back there, We handed out free popcorn, and we're going to watch Lucas's thought life for the last week. And we're going to put it up on the screen, turn the lights down low, eat some popcorn and have some soda, and just kind of watch his thought life, or watch Jared's thought life, or yours. Just kind of put it on there. We get to see, okay, what's going on? What's going on? It would be embarrassing, wouldn't it? You wouldn't want that to happen. Well, These leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, bring this woman out, not caring at all about her, just wanting to make a point, not caring at all about God's law, and we will see that clearly here in a second. They just want to win. And then in verse 6b through 8, we see two things primarily in Jesus, and it's amazing. We see one, the love of Jesus And secondly, we see the brilliance of Jesus. The love of Jesus and the brilliance of Jesus. So here she stood, all eyes upon her, exposed and shamed. And then in verse 6b, we get this. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down 
and wrote in the ground. Now it's fascinating. All eyes on this woman, and Jesus doesn't yet say a word. He just bends down and starts writing. Now there's different theories about what Jesus was writing. And Kurt uh, said a friend of his is um, convinced that he was writing something from chapter 7. In the end, we can't know for sure. The point is, Jesus is bending down and he's beginning to write on the dirt. And what happens when Jesus begins to write down in the dirt? Where do the eyes of the people go? Well, the eyes of the people go away from this woman and down toward Jesus. So in this instant, in a moment, Jesus, through his action, is diverting the shame to himself, or diverting the shameful eyes looking upon this woman, and he begins to write in the dirt, and they're all like, what's he writing? What's he doing? And so he gets the attention of the people, and the scribes and the Pharisees who are so willing to expose this woman's sin and bring attention to her and have everybody's look at, look, eyes look at her, Jesus is here in love, diverting attention away from this woman and bringing it on to himself. Jesus takes the eyes away. Takes for that moment judgment away from that woman. They exposed Jesus absorbed. They cast their shame to use this woman. Jesus said, I'll propitiate that shame. I'll divert it. I'll take it. And begins to write in the dirt. This is love. This is what Jesus does. And when we say that there's a consistency in the teaching of this section of Scripture with the rest of the Bible, is not this something that Jesus does time and time again? What did He do on the cross? He died in our place. He absorbed what was coming to us. And in this instant, He begins to write, and all attention goes to Him. And we see the brilliance of Jesus also. Just the love of Jesus, but not just the love of Jesus, but also the brilliance of Jesus. Because Jesus knows the law better than the law dogs. Better than the Pinkerton gang that was chasing down Jesse James. The law dogs of the day ran around claiming they knew what Moses taught. And here, calling attention to Moses, they twist Moses. And they actually lie. They don't care about what God's word actually says because they twist what God actually says. Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10 gives us the punishment for a man or a woman caught in the act of adultery. And you know what's missing from that judgment? Stoning. Because here's what Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10 says, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both, interesting, not just the woman, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. So the law dogs come and they say, hey, are you going to go with Moses or not? And here is Jesus knowing the word of God. He knows it. He knows every bit of it. It's just like roaring Aslan saying, I was there when it was written. I mentioned that a few weeks ago. You can always talk about Liam Neeson. You can do that over and over again. I was there when it was written. 
Death, yes, but not just for the woman and not by stoning. For both the man and the woman, death is sure to come. So Jesus exposes the scribes and the Pharisees as they tried to expose the woman caught in sin. And he turns it on them. You see, if you try to trap Jesus, you're going to lose every time. Every single time. Jesus, in his love and in his brilliance, brings the attention away from her and then by his actions and words brings them to a point of introspection and asks a pointed question. Now, another interesting point, Jesus also exposes their fear of civil authorities. Because if you remember, the Jewish people had to appeal not just to the Sanhedrin, but the Sanhedrin had to appeal to Pilate and then to Herod to bring a judgment to Jesus because the Jewish people did not have authority to bring civil judgments down upon people like death. And so when they came to Jesus, she should die. Jesus said, or she should be stoned. Jesus calls out their manipulation of the word, but then also he knows they're not going to do this because they're scared of Rome. Because for them to do this would be to go against the Roman guard, the Roman rule. And they didn't have authority to do that. So who's going to actually cast the stone? Well, they're in shock, I think, and in awe about Jesus reading their mail and their intentions. And then, before writing in the dirt again, he says this, Let him who is without sin be the first to cast a stone at her. And then in verse 9, they heard it. They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Much has been said about the fact about the older ones, wondering why the older ones. And it's not, the text doesn't say exactly why the older ones went away. But here's the truth about our lives. Older people can go one of two ways. Okay? You can get just mean and crotchety. Okay? And we've seen this. And just set in your ways. I hate everything. Okay? But you can also grow more gracious more aware of your own faults. And I pray that's the way I grow older, is that I'm more self-aware the older I get than I am right now. Um, we won't define what older is, okay? But whatever stage of life you're in right now, if you look back in your life, there's probably a time when you thought you had things together pretty well. Like, I've got my stuff together. I've got... My eyes dotted, my T's crossed. And as you get older, you're kind of like, you know what? I didn't know as much as I used to think I knew. Think I know. I'm a mess. And I need Jesus more than I ever knew I needed Jesus before. I'm a wreck. And the more and longer I'm walking with Jesus, the more Christ-like I'm actually being, the more sin that's being overcome, there's an honesty that comes with that where I'm realizing, you know what? I'm just... I messed up. And I think this is a moment of honesty for the people in the crowd as Jesus pulls out their miscommunication of the law of Moses. I, I don't want to say definitively because it doesn't say it, but I think there was a measure of conviction that came upon them and they just thought, you know what? I'm a mess. And the older ones knew it first. And they began to think, you know what? I'm not without sin. Because the wages of sin is 
death. And if we are all in sin or dealing with sin, then it's not just the woman, the adulterer, who deserves death. It's those in the crowd who aren't without sin who deserve death. So one by one, they begin to think, huh, here's Jesus writing in the dirt again. Writing down in the dirt. And one by one, they're just, you know what, this, I'm not without sin. And they just start walking home. I, I can't be here. And it's like a reverse revival that happens. They're not coming to Jesus, they're walking away. I am with sin. And so we get this moment, this woman who was there in front of these people, and then Jesus, they all walk away, and all we have now is Jesus and this woman. What's going to happen? Now, it's interesting, not only is Jesus going to say something about condemnation and no condemnation, Let's just read it. Look at verse 10. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. From now on, sin no more. All her accusers had walked away. Friends, this is our future. Have you ever had an ill word spoken against you? Have you ever been wrongly slandered or gossiped about? Have there been people in your life who have wanted to expose your sin rather than cover it? Have there been some in your life who had wanted others to look upon you with contempt? The promise of Jesus, not just in this case, but the promise of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is that He will silence all slanderers who have ever spoken slander against you. Every condemning voice, every bit of gossip and lie, He will wipe away not just your sin, but will take away your shame as well. He will silence the critics for all eternity. And for all the critics of Christianity in this world who all along continue to mock the truth of who Jesus is, there's going to be a day when their mocking is silenced. They walked away and they did not condemn her. And so Jesus says to this woman, what? Neither do I condemn you. No condemnation. Isn't this something the Bible teaches? There is therefore now no condemnation. Romans chapter 8 Verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For God has done something. Jesus is here doing something for this woman. And he speaks to her. She's caught in her sin. She doesn't deserve this at all. And Jesus says, no condemnation. And then he has the audacity to say, now go and sin no more. Now this is an amazing truth about Christianity that you won't find anywhere else. Because Jesus apparently gets the order wrong. He doesn't know that you're supposed to get things together first. To get in line. Jesus apparently doesn't know that you got to start working really hard and, to, and be really moral and clean yourself up first before He's supposed to say no condemnation. Somebody really needs to tell Him how religion works. 
Because global religion, again, I've said this to you time and time again, speaks with a unified voice. Be good, straighten up, work hard, be diligent, just stop sinning and then God will love you. But this woman, in her worst moment, hears the words come over her. No condemnation. Therefore, go and sin no more. Religion says sin no more, then you can have no condemnation. You just have to earn it. But Jesus says the truth that's otherworldly. No condemnation first. She was exposed. She was at her worst. She couldn't make herself look good here. She couldn't excuse her behavior away. Oh, Jesus, it, uh, 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 what, uh, it wasn't my fault. It was somebody else's fault. She was standing there in her sin. It was the most embarrassing situation possible for her. Jesus knows her worst sin, and it's right there. Jesus knows your worst sin, nothing hidden from his eyes, nothing you've ever done or thought has been hidden from him, ever. He knows it, everything about you, there was no reason whatsoever for Jesus to say this to her Unless it came solely from Him according to His good pleasure, His grace, and His love. For after all, it is not our loveliness that we look to when we look at the cross, but Jesus' loveliness. He shows us His worth and His value and His love for us that while we were still sinners, He would die for us. And as this woman standing there, she, she deserves condemnation. And Jesus gives her the one thing she doesn't deserve. No condemnation. This is the order of grace. No condemnation, therefore go and sin no more. No condemnation, therefore go and sin no more. He says it plainly. Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. I want to get to that here in a second. But first, Tim Keller has done this really amazing job of highlighting the difference that we're talking about here, between religion and the, and the structure and the system that says, be good, God will love you, work hard, earn from God. If there's a God, you can get to him, climb the ladder, just have enough faith, just grit your teeth, clench your fist. This work hard, get good mentality that the world offers to you, to me. The difference between that and the message of the gospel, the grace of God. Now, this is fascinating. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. And in the world's economy, that makes sense. If I obey, if I do the right thing, then I will be accepted. Jesus says, or the gospel says, the truth of the gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Motivation in religion is based on fear and insecurity. Fear and insecurity. But with the gospel, motivation for godliness is based on grateful joy. How could you give me no condemnation before earning it? Religion says, I obey God in order to get things from God. The gospel says, I obey to get God. I want to enjoy Him. 
to delight in him and resemble him. Religion says, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I'm angry at God or myself since I believe that anyone, that, that every, anyone who is good deserves a comfortable life. But the gospel says, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I struggle. But I know all my punishment fell on Jesus. And that while God may allow this for my training, he will exercise his fatherly love within my tri trial. Religion says, when I'm criticized, I'm furious and devastated because it's critical, because it is critical that I think of myself as a good person. Threats to my self-image must be destroyed at all costs. But the gospel says, when I'm criticized, I struggle. But it's not essential for me to think much of myself as a good person. My identity is not built on my record or my performance, but on God's love for me in Christ. Religion says, my prayer life consists largely of petition and it only heats up when I'm in a time of need. My main purpose in prayer is control of my environment. But the gospel says, my prayer life consists of generous stretches of praise and adoration. My main purpose is fellowship with God. A couple more. My identity and self-worth are based mainly on how hard I work or how moral I am. Or, so I must look down on those who I perceive as lazy or immoral. But the gospel says, my identity and self-worth are created on the one who died for me. I'm saved by sheer grace. I don't have to look down on those who believe or practice something different from me. I am only what I am by the grace of God alone. There is a fundamental difference between the Christian message and the message of the world. No condemnation comes to us first. Now here's the reality that we have before us. Because we can think, okay, no condemnation, so, okay, what does that mean? But Jesus tells us something that's impossible for us to do. He tells this woman, so stop sinning. Here, here's the truth. There's, you're not condemned, so quit sinning. I mean that. For all of us, quit sinning. Why are we sinning? What's the point? You're not condemned. You're counted righteous. So quit living in sin. Quit it. What sin do you need to repent of? Well, repent of it. But I hope you hear in this, even in this, as I'm saying this, a, a desire for some hope. Because the hope of the Christian life after we're a believer isn't in stop sinning. We're told to stop sinning. Go, and from now on, sin no more. If you've had that thunderous word spoken over you, no condemnation, then hear the thundering word also over you, go and stop sinning. But there's one of those declarations that will remain and one of those declarations, or one of those things that Jesus said that's impossible. Jesus tells us to do impossible things all the time. Things that we can't do even through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's God's prerogative to do that. He can command us to do whatever He wants to do. And friends, we don't have the capacity to keep the great, command, great commandment. Love God and love others. You can't do that even with the Holy Spirit. You will fail the rest of your life. Now, we can get better at that, but the gospel isn't, the good news of the gospel isn't love God and love other people. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus loved God and loved other people for you. 
No condemnation, so stop sinning. But here's this. But when you do, because you will today. And you will tomorrow. And you will Tuesday. And Wednesday. And Thursday. Now you're going to get victory progressively. You're going to overcome some of these sins. You're going to quit some of these sins. Only for more sins to pop up you didn't even know were there. So what about that? When you're caught red-handed again. When you stand exposed before the Lord again. And you feel a sense of shame. You told me no condemnation. I know this is true. And I know I'm supposed to leave my life of sin. And yet here I am again in the same mess. I'm caught red-handed, God. I did it again. Jesus looks at us again. Our eyes lock. Son, there's no condemnation. Daughter, there's no condemnation. So go and lead your life of sin. And then Wednesday happens, or Thursday, and you find yourself in the exact same spot, and Jesus looks at you again, no condemnation. Son, brother, there's no condemnation. So go and lead your life of sin. And then Friday happens. And you scream at your kid. You say, God, I need help being a dad. I'm impatient. It's like Jesus looks at us again. No condemnation. So go and leave your life of sin. Friends, this is the life of the believer. We keep going back, not to the hopeless reality of go and leave your life of sin. If we stay fixated, fixated on that and we miss those words, neither do I condemn you, you will live a hopeless life. But if we can see those words, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. And when we do, look to Jesus again and hear the thunder roll, no condemnation. Friends, there's life, there's joy, there's peace, there's power for the rest of the day. No condemnation. This is the truth of John chapter 8. Now let me ask you, is that passage consistent with the rest of the Bible? It is. It's consistent with the rest of the Bible. And so even if it isn't there in the original manuscripts, the truth of it is in God's very word. And the truth is the message that differentiates us from every other religion in the world. No condemnation. Go and sin no more. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your mercy.